On the third Thursday of every month, pastors and church leaders from near and far gather together for a time of friendship, gospel encouragement, and ministry insights in the warehouse at the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. The following is from one such third Thursday gathering. Thanks for just letting me in the door for crying out loud. I'm just lucky to have a job. <laughs> really thankful. And that I feel exactly as Jeremy just said. Um, I've never met anyone who is too encouraged, ever. So let's be encouraged in the Lord, and that's really what I want to do. What does a healthy church look like? Uh, Jeremy, what a great question. Thank you for framing it that way. There's nothing more urgent. Um, and there are, are many, many ways we could go about answering that question. And so I just want to, this is just one take on it. But I want to throw some things out that I think, I, I, I really hope will be encouraging. And what, I'm at, what I ask the Lord for on the way in is that he would fill me with his spirit. And in us all, he would create something new in this room that at 9 o'clock this morning didn't exist. And we, when we walk out at 10.30, there's a new reality in this world that God gave. Um, I know, and I also, Jeremy, thank you for directing us toward what we agree on and where we converge. Um, here's one thing I know we can all agree on as ministers and servants of the Lord. In our lives and in our ministries, we will do only those things that God could bless with revival of historic magnitude. We are just not going to waste our time on anything less. Even a tweet, before we post it, we can look at it and say, this little spark could God fan that into a flame of historic magnitude and true revival? If not, why are we putting that up there? Who, who, who gave us permission to settle for less than the book of Acts? Guys, as long as the book of Acts is in the book that we say is authoritative, we don't have permission. We, we can't with a clear conscience simply manage religious institutions, pick up a monthly paycheck, and sit it out until retirement. It would kill our souls if we were to do that. So I know we can agree on this, that in our lives and ministries, we will do only those things that God could bless with revival of historic magnitude. Now, God in his sovereign wisdom and grace may or may not grant us the third great awakening in our lifetime. But we want to do only those things that God could bless at that level. And I, I just can't tell you how encouraged I am these days, guys. I mean, we're, uh, I think D.A. Carson said, uh, I heard him say that even as the cultural indicators are tanking, the gospel indicators are surging in our nation right now. And what, what we see happening, and you guys are right in the thick of it, is that these streams of mighty divine blessing and refreshment and power are flowing into our nation. 
for example, um, Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition, Acts 29, the ERLC, and so forth. And there are many others. And they flow in parallel. Sometimes they touch, other times they don't. But I haven't seen anything like this in all my life. In the late 60s, early 70s, I was... Uh, I went through the, the Jesus movement in California, which was a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it, we were, but we were too youthful and goofy. We were just converted hippies. And we didn't translate those gains into long-term, uh, institutionally embodied um, ongoing redemptive powers, with the significant exception, I think, of the Calvary Chapel movement. <clears throat> but we didn't think in terms of longevity. So the Jesus movement was kind of like a power surge. It came and it went within the space of about three years. But guys, it was real. <laughs> For example, I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but I can't stop. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, my senior year in college, I went out to California for spring break. So there I am in Pasadena, and I hear about somebody. You're from Pasadena. Yeah, I grew up there. So I hear about a Larry Norman concert over in Hollywood. So my friends and I went over there to hear Larry Norman and at the Hollywood Palladium and hear about a 1,000, you know, raucous Jesus freaks uh, sitting on the floor of the Hollywood Palladium. And this kid comes up to the mic at the very beginning, and he says, here's the first thing out of his mouth. It's not like, hey, welcome, you know, blah, blah, blah. No. So how many of you want to become Christians? <laughs> About 35, 40 hands go up. No big emotional appeal, no buildup. This is before anything else happens. And he says, okay, you guys come with us. We've got some Christians over here. We're going to go over in this room. We're going to show you how to become Christians. They all get up and leave. They miss the concert. <laughs> Larry Norman comes out. He does his thing. He's done. The guy comes up at the end again. He says, okay, how many more of you want to become Christians? And these eyes saw the power of God come down, converting thousands. I have a living memory of God, the Holy Spirit, changing the subject on the streets of L.A. from drugs and revolution to Jesus and his gospel. God is not intimidated by Nashville, Tennessee. And I want to see that again here with us. Thousands of conversions. I mean, that's why we're in this room. That's what we long for. So what kind of churches, healthy churches, could God look at and say, yes, I can bless that with revival of historic magnitude? So let's think about it. And again, I've got, I mean, there's so many things we could say, but... Um, let me give you five proposals, okay? Weakness, honesty, honor, gentleness, unity. Indicators of a healthy church. Weakness, honesty, honor, gentleness, unity. And let me just think out loud for a few minutes, and then we can talk about it together, okay? So one, weakness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They hit the spiritual lottery. 
And when he said, blessed are the poor, he did not mean those who have only a little. He meant those who have nothing. We experience and perceive weakness, need, vulnerability, inadequacy as very negative because all those experiences injure our pride. And when our pride is lost, we feel as though we've lost everything. That's our insanity. But when we have nothing but need, as we stand before God, that's when we can also experience expectancy. At Emmanuel, one of our staff members who wasn't there at the very beginning when we planted in 2008 said to me, Ray, um, my impression of you guys who founded this church is that at that time you were so wounded, so broken, so exhausted, exhausted, you didn't even have the emotional energy for selfish agendas. And I said, yeah, that's probably true. And he said, well, I think the Lord looked at that and said, well, there's a church I can use. It's clear throughout the Bible from cover to cover, this is one of the great unmistakably obvious messages of the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's over and over again. The delicate part for which we need God's wisdom, especially in an established church, and many of you are, are, are not planting but, but serving churches, even historic churches, is to help people embrace need without their feeling shamed, without their feeling invalidated as if they were a failure until wonderful you showed up. You know, that's not what we want to say to people. That's so threatening and insulting. But as clear, gentle, and diplomatic as we can be, even as we humble ourselves, we know there is only one place of blessing. Isaiah 57, 15, for example. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So where do we go find God? Where does God live? What's his address? He lives way up high where we cannot go, and he lives way down low where we can go. But he's just, he isn't present in the mushy middle where everybody's just kind of sort of okay and poking along. You can't find God there. He has no intention of being there. And so we need to go down to the low place because that's where God is. Anybody can find him. And it might be hard for some churches because they feel too successful and they feel too significant, but other churches are open. Here's what they can expect. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away which is one reason why failure is such a gift from above. It's so wonderful for our churches to fail often enough and obviously enough that we stay hungry and poor before the Lord. A spirit of self-admiration, a spirit of self-assurance is death in any church of any denomination. We cannot build a healthy church where there is no felt need. But the Lord will enrich any church that has poverty of spirit. So at, at a practical level, uh, one recommendation I have is that not just the sermon, but the entire service and everything about that Sunday morning service would be to the people a total experience of gospel grace and reassurance. 
we require at Emmanuel everything throughout the service to communicate the beauty of gospel culture. So how do we do that? By making everything in the service accessible to weak people, beginners, strugglers, and the faint-hearted, because that's who everyone is. So our ministry must not be or come across as so demanding that only the mighty can participate. So I was on the phone with a, a pastor friend in another state, gosh, maybe a year ago, and it was, it, was, it was a hard time for him. And I said, look, he explained the situation, went on it like that. I, saw, I finally said, why don't you do this? Maybe this is crazy, but take a chance. Why not serve your people for just one year, just one year, without challenging them even once? For just one year, why not communicate only grace, mercy, non-crisis, non-demand? Why not take that risk? And then if that fails, go back to challenging the people. But I don't think it will fail. And he didn't, and he's not there anymore. When somebody comes up to me after a, a sermon and says, my pastor, what a challenging sermon. I feel like a failure. Could we call a moratorium on the very word challenge in Christian ministry? In our services at Emmanuel, we begin every service with a call to worship that we stole from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. It used to be on their, the homepage of their website. And I don't know where they got it. It looks just, it's just wonderful and traditional. But Pastor TJ or I, whoever starts the service, we just stand there and there's no big fanfare. Who gets in their car and drives down to church on Sunday morning because they need more fanfare and more hoopla? In Nashville? Our city is exhausted. Keeping up appearances is exhausting. Anyway, so we just stand there and we calmly, sincerely say to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the justifier of the inexcusable, the defender of the guilty, and so on and so forth. Welcome. And that sets the tone for everything. So right from the get-go, everybody understands, we're not going to get up in your face and tell you, you know, here are five easy steps to managing stress in your life. The Bible calls that Law. And law defeats us. We need to be embraced by a Savior. To do that, we need to know we can let our guard down. So everything in the service is a way of saying you can actually let your guard down and open up to this because we're worse than we think. He's better than we think. Why not get together? And sometimes as we give that greeting, it, many times I've had to ask the Lord to help me get through it emotionally because I, I'm looking at the people. I know what many of them are facing. And I know the heart of Christ. 
for those very people. One of the guys in the church said he broke the speed limit to get to church that morning because he really needed to hear that at the beginning of the service. It defines everything at the very outset. So that simple welcome with no fanfare sets a tone of zero demand that anyone can enter into without being on edge and wondering, how is this going to blindside me next? So, by the way, I don't even remember how we got that thing going, um, which itself says something. Uh, I mean, I know we, 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 we used it. Mark got it from 10th Pres. We owe them a debt of gratitude. But the most life-giving things about our church, we did not mastermind. The mediocre things, we created. It's just stuff that's kind of, okay, whatever. The compelling things God gave. We just stumbled into green pastures and beside still waters. And after we were there, we kind of looked around and thought, oh, this is pretty good. Let's stay here. How did we get here? This is of God. So it cannot be our purpose to be impressive. It is only our purpose and our weakness to keep stumbling forward. That's the trick in life. Stumble forward toward Jesus. That's weakness. Number two, honesty. The New Testament says, but if first John 1 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Man, I love that verse. I mean, that in 2011 at Emmanuel, we had never been opposed to honesty. Who's opposed? to honesty. But something happened in August, September of 2011 because that ver it became the, the wardrobe for us into the Narnia of community as we had never experienced it before. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with two things happen. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we know from the context of 1 John chapter 1 what that walking in the light is. It's an honest relationship. It's honesty before God and with one another. It's realism. It isn't a sinless life because walking in the light is where we find cleansing from sin. So John's whole point in that first chapter is that this kind of openness, this kind of fellowship, this kind of vulnerability, this kind of owning up, just as a lifestyle, as Christians and as churches, his whole point is this is not optional. This is orthodox, Jesus-given, apostolic, original, real New Testament Christianity, and anything else is either principial or functional heresy. John's writing toward the end of the first century. He's the last of the living apostles. He's writing at about 90, 95 AD, and he's worried because heresy is already seeping into the early Christian church in the second generation. Heresy is a problem because heresy is not just a wrong belief. It's a belief so wrong, it will rob your soul of God. So, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and so forth, we might not have perfect theology, but you can be any of those, and you can know God. But this heresy John is concerned about is so wrong, so opposite to who God is. If you believe this and follow through, you actually depart from Christianity, no matter what you think. 
So any other kind of Christianity other than this honesty is heretical. He, John is saying Jesus came into the world to give us this. He says in verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him. We eyewitnesses and apostles heard from him, from Jesus. We actually knew him. We spent three years. We had lunch with him every day for three years. And here's the message he came to give us. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's not even a tweet. Three years of teaching in one sentence. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What is light? Light is beautiful. Light is life-giving. Um, light is necessary. And light spreads. Darkness is powerless before the light. Jesus came down from heaven into this world to tell us that. That reality is out there. We've parachuted into a universe where God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. There is no dark side. There is nothing about God we need to worry about or brace ourselves against. Then he says in verse 7, and if we walk in the light as he is in the light. So in verse 5, God is light. In verse 7, God is in the light. Why? Because we withdraw in hip, into the darkness of denial, hypocrisy, posing, image management, and so forth. We withdraw into those shadows, but God is out in the light. God is not hard to find. He is not playing catch me if you can. He is not playing games with us. He is just waiting for us, and he's out in the obvious place of facing him and facing ourselves and owning up and living in honesty. So what's on the line, according to this verse, is our very authenticity as biblical churches. Healthy churches are where, with non-dramatic emotions, at all levels and in all moments, our lifestyle is to admit what isn't going well in our lives. Not to distract attention from the Lord, but to increase everyone's admiration of him as the all-sufficient savior of hopeless cases, which we all are. So if we Christians, and especially we pastors, are admitting what's hard, even as we rejoice in the Lord, then every sinner present can think, well, maybe I could, maybe I could be involved in that too. At... Uh, Emmanuel, we have what we call the Emmanuel mantra, and I keep these in my wallet because I, I like to give these to people like when I get a cup of coffee or something. We call it the Emmanuel mantra. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. So I was with a guy at a business counter the other day, and I gave it to him, and I, I said, man, we'd love to have you come some Sunday morning. 10.30, I'm always down at the front, come say hi to me. And I said, but what, what, I said, I don't know, you're pretty well put together, I don't know if, I mean, unless you're a complete idiot, this is just not going to work for you. <laughs> I've never given one of these to somebody and they don't smile. So I don't walk up and I say, you're a sinner, but Jesus died for you. I say, I'm a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright. So, because that's the truth, guys. It's just the truth. And when people smile, that opens a door. Honesty opens doors. 
Francis Schaeffer used to speak of the two orthodoxies, the orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community. If we only have orthodoxy of doctrine and we treat healthy, honest community as an optional overlay, we will not be healthy. Community has as much authority in a biblical church as does doctrine. And in too many churches, I'm sure, and you know, nobody admits anything. You'd be crazy to admit anything. The social environment of a church can be infested with posing, pretending, image projection, which then gives rise to fault-finding, blaming, shaming, the opposite of the gospel, and functional heresy. But in an honest church, sinners can own up to what isn't going well and grow together then. And, and John is saying that alone is apostolic Christianity in the world today. We are always one generation away from completely losing real original Christianity. It is not in our DNA. Every generation must rediscover afresh for themselves the Christianity of the apostles and rebuild it again, both doctrinally and relationally for the future through not just successful churches, but through healthy churches because people are getting real before the Lord with one another. In the first great awakening, as it was ramping up in 1738, John Wesley and George um, Peter Bowler, excuse me, John Wesley, Peter Bowler, the German Moravian, got together in London because they created small groups. The early Methodist movement, it was brilliant. John Wesley was brilliant. And so they were drawing up ground rules for how they're going to have their small groups, which would meet every, once a week. <coughs> ground rule number 10 that everyone in order, so here's a circle of people sitting in a, in a room somewhere in chairs in London somewhere in 1738. They go around the circle. Everyone in order speak as freely, plainly, and concisely as he can the real state of his heart with his several temptations and deliverances since the last time of meeting. <laughs> well, who couldn't flourish there? I mean, every week, catch up with each other on the real state of your heart, and it's not self-pity, because it's with se your several temptations and deliverances. Here, here's how Jesus is helping me. This week, where I really need it in my life. That's amazing. Well, no wonder the Methodist movement took off. In his book, Confess Your Sins, John Stott quotes the head of an English mental hospital who said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Now, on Sunday morning in Nashville, Tennessee, it's worth getting in your car and driving down to church if you can be assured of forgiveness. And not just formally, but at a felt level. And that's what the verse says. If, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he's right out there waiting for us with his arms open. We have fellowship with one another. You know what it's like at a dinner party when everybody's having a nice time and it's really sweet and food's great, blah, 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 you're with friends. And then somebody gets honest. Somebody gets real. Somebody in that circle starts talking about what's hard in life. And immediately, everybody in the room senses, oh, the ground rules just changed. And everybody goes there together. That's fellowship. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
that's talking about the experience of cleansing, felt cleansing. Now, I would not have written the verse that way. Given my pre-understanding as I step into these things, I would have said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of God's son cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another. So, you know, this cleansing is kicking into gear inside my being and then I'm entering into this fellowship. But it's, it, the fellowship comes first because it's in the context of fellowship that the cleansing gets traction. The cleansing stops being hypothetical, theoretical and becomes real and felt. Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together, talks about this. I mean, I need, when, when he, he said, when the Christ in your heart is weak, you need the Christ in your brother's heart who is strong, and vice versa. Who doesn't need a Christian brother or sister to look them right in the eyes and say, okay, you've just confessed to me something that's really painful to you. You're so embarrassed by your own failure. But, and then you look them right in the eye. You don't look at, the, the, at their face. And by the way, this is really important for us guys because we don't like doing this. But when it starts feeling awkward, we're finally getting somewhere. So you, look, you don't look just at a guy's face. You look him in the eyes. And it gets intense. And you say, but you are forgiven. You are cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You will rejoice and you will like it. Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think it's, there's wisdom in us pastors. Again, we don't, we don't get up in the pulpit to point attention to ourselves. We preach not ourselves, but Christ. But there, it is exalting to Christ at strategic moments along the way for us to talk to the people about what isn't going well in us. So, for example, I, there was a point in my, one of my sermons where it was relevant to do that. So I took a brief section from my journal and I read this to the people. I, I talked about the real state of my heart when I wrote this in my journal. Anxious that the blessing of God will pass me by. Anxious that I am a failure. Fearful about my life, my stewardship. Pervasive self-doubt. I feel unreal, inconsequential. A crushing sense of futility and of the huge task ahead, a longing for the glory of the Lord to be all over my life. I don't think I failed to serve the people by giving them that window into my soul. I think I helped them stay in 1 John chapter 1, healthy community. The deal breaker in a healthy church is not human fallibility. The deal breaker is being so perfect and so demanding and so angry and so forth that it jeopardizes the space for other sinners who are trying honestly to rethink their lives. The greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip and the slanderer. That person might be outwardly blameless, but in fact lives in an orgy of controversy. I'm going to guess in none of our churches, the last time we took the Lord's Supper, we turned it into an orgy. But there might well be an orgy going on in some of our churches. The orgy of self-gratifying controversy. There are some people who just don't feel healthy, real, and normal, and significant if they aren't generating trouble. 
the people like that in your church, I probably sent them to you because I, I told them. <laughs> but in a healthy church, we set a tone where any sinner walking in harmony with other sinners, all of us together can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's why it matters so much. There are, in fact, two religions constantly competing for the soul of every church. That doesn't mean the doctrinal statement keeps changing. The doctrinal statement is sacred as it should be. But the reality within the church, the doctrinal statement is only on paper. The reality in a church is two opposite religions constantly competing. The wondrous cross of divine sacrifice and the hideous cross of human sacrifice. If we are not sweetly subdued by the wondrous cross of Jesus, we will go looking for a human scapegoat on whom we can vent our own guilty anxieties so that we don't have to face ourselves with any kind of honesty. There is a brilliant essay in the book Justified in Christ by William Edgar, who teaches at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where he talks about the French Revolution. He talks about white lynchings in the Jim Crow South, and so lynching of black people in, in the, the white Jim Crow South as our own self-invented, grotesque rituals of self-justification, where we offload our shame and offload our historic guilt and offload all this darkness that's within us. By we're all human. Moral psychology in the fallen mind is on the radar looking for somebody. Who will be my scapegoat today? That explains a large part of Twitter right there. Yeah. And the rage in our country. We're looking for sacrificial victims because somebody, I know I can't bear my sin. Somebody's got to bear it and it's not going to be me. You'll do. You make one false move, you will qualify. And in that world of bloodthirsty self-justification, Jesus stands up and he says, I'll be your scapegoat. Yeah. Almost nobody understands that in Nashville today. Honesty. The New Testament, it's why the New Testament says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude, verse 21. Honesty about our own sins helps us stay inside God's felt love where we can live again. Thirdly, honor. The Bible says, Romans 12.10, this is one of my favorite verses, outdo one another in showing honor. It does not say honor one another. It's competitive, and everybody wins. Outdo one another in showing honor. Man, <laughs> I don't need it. It's not informing anybody to say the world is not like this. The world is filled with sarcastic put-downs and so forth. But in a church where the gospel actually means something, the people do not eye one another with negative scrutiny and merciless comparisons and guarded aloofness, but they move toward one another with rejoicing and honor. Why? Because in every true Christian, Christ is present, the hope of glory. And it's not even hard to see. So I'm talking to Jay here, you know, and I'm getting his story, and he doesn't even realize it. The, the, 
Christ in him, the hope of glory. The glory is just starts showing. Any conversation, just two questions into it. So tell me your story. Where'd you go to high school? And 15, 20 seconds later, you're listening and you're thinking, man, look what God has done. Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is glory in you. And the relational corollary to that is honoring one another. The doctrine of glorification creates a culture of honor. C.S. Lewis said if we could see one another as we will be in our full redemption, we would be tempted right now to fall down at one another's feet in worship. If we're never, let's never get down on our faces before one another, okay? That's not a good idea. We know that from Acts chapter 10. But if we're never tempted to, do we understand those among whom we are walking? Y'all are not ordinary. We're packaged in ordinariness. I think that God has a sense of humor. I mean, look at us. <laughs> not one of us has this big red S on his chest, you know, Superman. So in this surprising, ordinary packaging, God is locating glory. Jay, come here a minute. Let me borrow you for just a second. Do you mind? I, I don't know that I've given you much choice. I'm sorry. That's okay. okay. <laughs> Let's think in terms of the doctrine of creation and secondly, the doctrine of, of redemption. Okay. The doctrine of creation. Now, this man is a divine original. This man to my immediate left right now. If there was uh, hanging here on, on, in, in, the, in the church a Monet original, we'd all look at it and go, wow. And we go up close and look and see the very brush strokes of Monet. This man is not a Monet original. He's a divine original. The very brush strokes of God are on this man. So it's like, okay, and then think of the doctrine of redemption, there is resident with this, within this man right here, the very Holy Spirit of God, and there is enough divine positive energy inside this man to renovate the universe. How dare I treat him dishonorably? Who do I think I am? Thanks, man. Did you tell the people in my church that? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You know what I hate about that? That's also true of the Christians I don't like. Just as true. If their hearts have been made new, been made new by, by Christ himself, there's glory in them. And so this is sort of sweetly humbles us all, and we start looking for what's wonderful in one another. We start honoring one another and so forth. The Bible says in Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Three parts. As for the saints in the land, that's Old Testament code language for Christians who are in Christ. They, as for the saints in the land, set apart to God, they are the excellent ones. There's excellence in every true Christian, Christ in them, the hope of glory, in whom is all my delight. So I, at that point, when I recognize this, I then make a personal emotional investment in whom is all my delight. That language is borderline idolatrous. That's, the Bible never says love one another moderately. It says, love one another earnestly from the heart, in whom is all my delight. So I lay it on the line emotionally and make a personal, emotional, significant commitment 
to the people among whom I walk because Christ is in them and I honor them. At Emmanuel Nashville on Tuesday nights, we have what we call a manual theology for men. It's basically three things from seven to nine. It's teaching, about an hour. Then we have walking in the light, and we break up in twos, and one guy says to the other, here's what isn't working in my life right now. The other guy says, okay, let me pray for you. Doesn't fix him, he just prays for him. Then turn it around. Here's what isn't working in my life. And he prays. So everybody has the chance to unburden their heart and get prayed for and share that ministry with somebody else. And the third thing we do is honor time. And so I'm just standing there and all these guys, and so I quote Romans 12.10. I open it up. Hands go up all over the room. And so one guy might say, it's not flattery because it's real. Uh, one guy might say to another, um, Jim, I want to honor you because last Thursday night when I felt like like looking at porn, I texted you, you called me right back, and you, we spent an hour, uh, half an hour on the phone talking that through. You prayed for me. You got me through that. Dude, I honor you. That is so healthy. It just sweeps aside the alternatives. The snarky put-downs. It's unthinkable among God's people. Fourthly, I'll just do this quickly. I've got to finish it up. Gentleness. The Bible says, Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Other translations speak of reasonableness or magnanimity. Jesus himself said, I am gentle and lowly at heart. That was the one time Jesus opened up his chest and told us about his inner heart, his core being, his deepest self way down inside. We know about his miracles. We know about his, um, uh, his teachings, his death, resurrection, second coming. I know a lot about that. But the one time he told us about his heart, he said, I am gentle and lowly down to the deepest substratum of my being. It's who I just am and never will not be. So we actually live in a universe where ultimate reality is gentleness. Almost nobody believes that. Which explains a lot about our world. Jonathan Edwards used to speak of a lamb-like and a dove-like spirit as one of the essential marks of a true Christian. Not swagger. Not pushiness. Not demandingness. Edwards, when my son Dane wrote the book, Jonathan Edwards on the Christian Life, in that series, Theologians on the Christian Life. He, and he read through the Edwards corpus, and he was so struck by this emphasis. Edwards talked about a lot of things, and then when he, when he comes to the subject of gentleness, there's this big spike in terms of emphasis. So Dane was forced by the evidences in Edwards' theology to devote an entire chapter to gentleness. So there's a chapter on the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the glory of God and so forth. And there's a chapter on gentleness. Jonathan Edwards on the Christian life. Edwards said he called gentleness the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. So in a healthy church, because cases of 
pastoring people through discipline and correction is simply inevitable. It's part of our job. In a healthy church, leaders shepherd disciplinary cases very carefully, keeping things at a low level of visibility, using informal relationships as much as possible and formal procedures as little as possible. They take care not to increase anybody's embarrassment. They try to make a positive response as easy as it can be. All correction and all firing is done in a way that, if possible, preserves human dignity. Nobody is helped by being shamed, ridiculed, humiliated, especially in public. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. There's so much we don't even need to talk about. But the Bible also says, rebuke those who contradict. So how do we know when in gentleness to cover and when in boldness to confront? The difference is falling short of the, of the gospel versus going opposite to the gospel. All of us all the time fall short of the glory of Jesus. But behaving in a manner opposite to the gospel, all roughness and brashness and throwing our weight around and so forth... That those sins so go against the grain of the gospel so harmfully they must be confronted. It's not a question of which sins irritate you or me personally, but which sins make it really hard for people to believe in Jesus. So actually, it's we who are in leadership who are shepherding disciplinary cases who ourselves must discipline ourselves first and foremost. Because we Christian leaders can bungle a relationship so badly by a lack of gentle humaneness that the person on the receiving end of our folly walks away thinking, if those guys represent Jesus as he is, then I am conscience-bound to stop being a Christian and to spend the rest of my life opposing Christianity as something brutal. We can be the phot photographic negative of Jesus, and that's when a rebuke is right. Luther comments, it is very necessary, it's a very necessary warning for answering the sharp dealings of pastors who show no pity in raising up and restoring again those who are fallen. Calvin comments, great harm is often done by excessive severity. No rebukes are godly and Christian which do not savor of meekness. How many people experiencing discipline in our churches walk away thinking, man, that felt like the touch of Jesus himself? I recently was in a conversation with a very significant, magnificent young Christian man who absolutely wrecked his life in another state years ago, and the elders of that church where he was a member gathered him in, embraced him, helped him, understood him, listened to him, corrected him so gently, it saved his whole life. And now he is so thankful for those guys. He doesn't resent them. He respects them, cherishes them. He speaks honoringly of those guys because they were gentle. Let me just make one last comment, and I'm done, Jeremy. I apologize for unity. I'm talking about theological unity. Because what binds us really together most closely, most closely is not shared experiences, but shared beliefs. And when we have relational problems, this very strong power can bring us back together 
even when we don't feel like it, our shared beliefs. So in a healthy church, a doctrinal statement doesn't act only as a barrier to membership and involvement, but even more, the doctrinal statement acts as an attractant to membership and involvement. We're not ashamed of the gospel. The doctrinal statement in a healthy church is less a moat around the castle keeping people out and more a fire in the great hall keeping people warm. So here's what we did at Emmanuel is we, we just downloaded the doctrinal statement of the Gospel Coalition. And here's how we think about it. And, I, and this doesn't work for everybody because you might be in a denomination where the doctrinal parameters are already defined. But if you're planting a non-denominational church, this might work for you. So I think of concentric circles. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. And outside the outermost circle, I am not a Christian. I might be Hindu, I might be Buddhist, I might be agnostic, whatever, okay? Then I, I'm converted. Now I'm a Christian. The outermost circle is a Christian. I might be Roman Catholic, might be Eastern Orthodox, I might, whatever. I'm a Christian now. Now oh, I'm beginning this journey. I'm reading the Bible, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm going to church, I'm in a Bible study, and I'm learning all kinds of wonderful things, and I'm learning, I'm seeing things in a new way, and my next step as I grow is now I'm a Protestant. So I'm not Eastern Orthodox, for example, anymore. Now I'm consciously a Protestant. So I believe in justification by faith alone and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm stumbling forward. I'm, man, it's an exciting journey. And I'm learning new, seeing things in a new way. And now I become reformed. And what that basically means is I, I see God as first in everything. God comes first in every, even in my decision for God. God was the one. I didn't jumpstart God. He jump-started me. And so God's and his glory comes first in everything. And that insight is changing everything. So, wow, this is, oh, I'm sorry. I just blew, I, I just blew this. I, I skipped one, evangelical, then reformed. Sorry, guys. Evangelical, I grew up in an evangelical church, Billy Graham Christianity. The Bible says Christianity. You must be born again Christianity. This is so healthy. Now, that word evangelical has been politicized and misused, but it's a, it just means gospel. The New Testament word for gospel is evangel. I'm, I am to this day a, you know, evangelical blue blood, and I'm deeply grateful to God. So this is sort of generic evangelical. Now, and then I kept going, and I ended up reformed. Okay, now, and then within the Reformed category, you might be Presbyterian, you might be Baptist, you might be Anglican, you might be Charismatic. So there are groups within the Reformed. Now, here's, I'm not recommending this, I'm just explaining something. Where we ended up at, at Emmanuel is there, so that both John Piper and Tim Keller could join our church and flourish and serve. Other churches are going to end up here. This is the boyhood church I grew up in, which in some ways was the best church I've ever been a part of. It was so radiant with the Spirit of God. But here's my point. The biblically serious unity of first importance, first the gospel itself, focuses on Jesus. And the Bible itself tells us not everything is of first importance. So secondary tertiary doctrines we respect but we don't emphasize them. 
we emphasize what is unifying of first importance, and in those secondary and tertiary doctrines, which we respect, we show how they connect to Jesus, who is of first importance, so that they have a corollary subordinate authority and glory as they deserve, but they're not the deal-breaker doctrines. And our aim, what I'm recommending in terms of unity, our aim, however you define the doctrine of your church, and it really matters, our aim should, not, should be to locate our doctrinal boundary not at the outermost vague area level, nor at the innermost demanding level, but somewhere in between those two where many believers can, in good conscience, rally around the shared convictions that everyone knows are established not as anybody's agenda, but for one reason only, to lift up Jesus and his gospel. Now, that's a unifying doctrinal statement. And it deserves everyone's wholehearted agreement among the pastors, elders, deacons, staff, Bible study leaders, small group facilitators, Sunday school teachers, and so forth, throughout the whole church. Because it's not anybody's hobby horse. It has real authority, and it's a cheerful, delightful, worthy authority. So you've got to be unified doctrinally. And don't, you know, there are two ways, three ways we could do this. The, the National Association of Evangelicals, which I have nothing but respect for, their doctrinal statement is one page. The Westminster Standards, the Presbyterian doctrine that I still cherish, my copy is 400 pages. So this is minimalist, this is maximalist, but this approach, what I'm recommending, is between those two. It's theologically robust, but inclusive and unifying. All right, guys. Thank you for your time. God bless you. Keep going. Never stop, never stop, never stop, never quit. Never give up. You're always, listen, my dad used to say when I played high school football, he said, you keep hitting that other guy on the other side of the line as hard as you can for just, you, you last him, outlast him for five minutes. That's all you need to do. You just keep going five minutes longer and you'll win. You're always close to a big win. God bless you guys. <laughs>